0: Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, uh, like many of you, I suppose I'd heard About Harold Hughes, um, that he served as Iowa's governor in the 1960s, right before Robert Ray, and then as U.S. Senator from the late 60s until the mid-70s. But up to now, I didn't know much about Hughes. What made him stand out, uh, what made, in fact, some people talk about him with reverence, and what made him exceptional in many ways. And that's why I was thrilled some time ago to discover a new biography of Harold Hughes. Written by my guest today, Jerry Harrington joins me in the studio in Iowa City, freelance writer and author of this wonderful book, Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes. Jerry Harrington, welcome to our studio. Thank you. I enjoyed reading this book so much, and thank you for coming in. Uh, I think we should start by having you introduce us to Harold Hughes, uh, by doing a bit of reading from the introduction of your book, if I can suggest that.
0: Okay, I can do that. On the day Harold Everett Hughes was born, February 10th, 1922, a fire destroyed the farm rented by his family outside Otter Grove, Iowa. Recent arrivals in western Iowa from the hills of Kentucky via Illinois. The Hughes family of four survived with only the clothes on their backs— With little money before the blaze, and now totally destitute, they relied on the kindness of kin, their religious faith, and their indomitable will. Born into poverty, Harold Hughes had a special perspective on how life's burdens can affect individuals through no fault of their own. As a young man, he faced additional hardships, the violent death of a beloved brother, brutal conflict on the battlefields of Europe, and the severe alcoholism that nearly destroyed him. Overcoming these hurdles, Hughes used his unique leadership talent to become governor of his state in the 1960s and a US senator from 1969 to 74. But political office is not Hughes's only legacy. It is what he did and how he did it. As governor, he led a reform of state government with a dynamism not seen in decades modernizing it to accommodate mid-20th century needs. As a single-term senator, Hughes vigorously raised the issue of alcoholism as a disease to the national level, spearheading the first federal programs to aid sufferers. He was a relentless critic of the Vietnam War and American military deception. As a politician, Hughes was an inspirational leader who fearlessly addressed controversial issues, his captivating presence on the national stage compelled supporters to initiate a presidential campaign on his behalf, only to have Hughes end it. Hughes was a man of unusual candor and directness, but it was how he expressed himself that so impressed people. He was a large, six foot three, two hundred and thirty pound, handsome man, gifted with a deep, booming voice and his speeches could bring vast crowds to tears as he expressed compassion for the less fortunate. He spoke eloquently about the suffering of others, applying in one writer's words, quote, the compassion of one who was known and overcome despair, end quote. Residing within this individual was an uneasy soul of immense contradictions. Hughes was a recovered alcoholic who fought to expand legal liquor sales in Iowa, a college dropout who could easily discourse with intellectuals, a sincere Christian who swore like a vulgar stable hand, and an ambitious politician who walked away from political power to follow his own inner calling. This is the individual born on that day of flames in western Iowa in 1922. But fire may not be the best image to mark this man. Perhaps a better one is thunder a deep rumbling sound heralding the passion of an Old Testament God. This metaphor, Thunder from the Prairie, illustrates Harold Hughes, a man of weight and depth who dramatically impacted countless lives, moved others to take productive action, and made a positive difference in the way we live today.
1: Jerry Jerry Harrington reading from his biography, Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes, and in that introduction, reading from bits of the introduction there, uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll ask the question anyway, because the things you list there, he defies these conventional categories of a politician. But in your words, why did you want to t- tackle this as a project before we get into Harold Hughes' early life growing up in Ida Grove?
0: I have always admired the man. I have admired his uniqueness in that he was a born-again Christian who was a liberal. And uh, if you'll put him in the context of his age, he probably was a politician before you saw the the movement of the Christian right. and And he was in defiance of that in terms of of policy. Also, it, it was just the charisma of the man. he He would enter a room and suck all the oxygen out of it. <laughs> I mean, he was just a, you know, a powerful leader who, Significantly altered the political landscape of the state. And I, I say he was one of the four great governors in Iowa history.
1: Mm. Um, let's go to his early life. Uh, he grew up in the northwest Iowa community of Ida Grove. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Grew up in poverty, lived through the Great Depression, had a brother. You mentioned, you know, lost a brother at an early age. And I, I want to take some time to have you talk about your research and your writing about his early life, because I'm sure you'll agree it's so fundamental to the politician, the leader he became later in life. Walk us through a little bit of his early life.
0: He was, as I I stated in my reading, he was born in 1922. A little bit about his parents. They came from the hills of Kentucky and they migrated out to western Iowa based on uh, letters from a relative that said you can starve slower out here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were so poor that shortly after their wedding, they drove west to Ida Grove, and their car broke down in Bloomington, Illinois, and they had to stay there five years before they could afford to fix their car and go to, to uh, Ida Grove. Uh, he grew up poor, but his mother instilled within him this this Christian concept of the command of Christ to help your neighbor mm. to help the downtrodden, and that uh in talking with Hughes's daughter uh, Phyllis Hughes Ewing, who is still alive today um she really gives his mother uh credit for instilling that that way of Christian thinking in into his soul he uh grew up a very successful uh high school student, excelled in. In football, uh, he was uh, first-team all-state in tuba, <laughs> and, and uh, was was quite a successful student. Uh, and then drafted in, into World War II.
1: Before before that, back to his high school, he his, he and his brother were known as the two pachyderms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pachyderms, yeah. another name for an elephant.
0: Yeah, and uh, his older brother Jesse was known as Big Pack, and uh, Harold Hughes was known as Little Pack. If you if there was one. And he, he uh, kept the nickname Pack the rest of his life.
1: Mm. And he lost that older
0: brother. He did. Um, Jesse was going to be drafted uh, into the war, uh, into the service, and they went on a celebration around Storm Lake uh, with a group of other uh, students. They, they uh, drove off a bridge and drowned, all four of them in the car. And It was a Devastating loss to, to Harold because it, mm-hmm. the two were were very very close and obviously a family of four they were very close yeah
1: and so to, to place this on a timeline this is just before the outbreak of World War Two right mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. right and 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 before that as well had he met his future wife Eva
0: he did um, I somewhere he he met her and they got married before Hughes uh, was drafted into World War Two
1: and you you talked about the poverty he grew up in. Her family was even more impoverished.
0: Yeah. She grew up in a, in a household uh, without a father who died at a, when she was very young. And uh, he used to told his daughter, Phyllis, you know, we grew up poor, but your mother really grew up poor. Mm-hmm. And they ha- they almost had to. I think they lived off the, uh, the charity of relatives and neighbors.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting parts of your book uh, talking about his training at the start of uh, uh, the second world war. um we want to hear a little bit of audio from him reflecting on that in just a moment um uh, but but, I want to have you talk a little bit about um his service before we hear his reflection because again, here uh, so formative in his later life um, uh, because of the the horrific Experiences he had uh, in Sicily, in Italy, during in combat.
0: There is absolutely no doubt Harold Hughes saw the hell of war. Uh, he was part of the contingency of troops that left North Africa and invaded Sicily and by invasion i mean the the troops poured on the beaches uh, against the assault of, of german and italian troops
1: was this the part where he's under the under patton
0: yes yes they they invaded sicily they took the southern part of sicily and then uh, uh US General Patton and uh, General Montgomery of of the uh of England were racing to get to the top of Sicily and both of them drove their troops and, and Harold Hughes was under Patton yeah
1: mm-hmm. okay and also during this time he you have an account of how he had malaria he caught malaria and uh <laughs> lost what 40 pounds oh he, he
0: yes i think it was 50 yeah i uh-huh. mean he was uh and he was uh, in a British hospital. So no one knew where he was. And uh, he kept getting letters from home and didn't get the letters delivered until long after they were sent. He had a whole pile. And he he found out that that his daughter was born uh, in that packet of letters. So um, that took him out of combat. And that was after uh, landing on the Italian uh, shores for the Italian invasion, which followed Sicily. And, uh, yeah, he was in pretty bad shape.
1: Mm-hmm. And he suffered thereafter from what we today call PTSD.
0: Yeah, yeah. He, uh, later on, he would wake up in the middle of the night, have a dream, and, and it was as if he was back in combat. Yeah, and his wife had to calm him down.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we have to take a short break. Uh, Jerry Harrington is my guest uh, for this hour, author of Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes. Uh, in it, uh, Jerry's, uh, this took probably years to make, or how many hours? Years?
0: It took about seven years. Seven
1: years. And in this magnificent book, he explores the life of Harold Hughes, his working class origins, uh, overcoming severe alcoholism. We'll talk about that in a minute, to become really a transformative Iowa governor and then became a U.S. senator. Uh, So many connections with the 60s into the early 70s. We'll be back with more from Jerry Harrington, Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR
0: comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band, and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com.
1: This December, IPR is heading to the magical Christmas markets in Germany and Austria. Save $400 by signing up before June 11th at ipr.org slash travel. Don't wait. Tickets are limited. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Jerry Harrington, my guest, author of Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes. Um, Before the break, uh, Jerry, we talked uh, about uh, Harold Hughes serving in World War II. Uh, He uh, participated in the invasions both of Sicily and and Italy. Um, He started training in 1943. Uh, He was uh, under (laughs) his uh, group uh, of—he was under Patton, so to speak, involved in some horrible— a really horrible, friendly fire yes. incident that killed hundreds of paratroopers. I've read a lot of history about World War II. I'd not heard about this horrific accident. Well, it's
0: nothing to be proud of. Yeah. they uh, When the troops hit the shore, uh, there were paratroopers coming in, and the U.S. troops did not know they were Americans. And they fired on them. Several hundred died. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he was, he was part of that. Yeah.
1: So let's listen to a little bit um, uh, of Hughes' reflection. This is a clip from, uh, courtesy of uh, Iowa PBS, uh, their series on the governors of Iowa. Really do check that out. Um, it's, it's a great series. This one focusing, of course, on Harold Hughes, uh, reflections of Harold Hughes um, of his combat during World War II. Let's listen.
2: I was a soldier in World War II. I was a Browning Automatic Rifleman. I wasn't an officer. I was a private. I saw a lot of combat. I was a combat soldier. I was attached to the 16th infantry of the 1st Division. I was attached to the American Rangers in Sicily, the British commandos in Italy. I was a part of an outfit that was used for firepower support for assault troops.
1: That clip from Governors of Iowa on Iowa PBS. Um, He was sent back to the States. We talked about that bout of severe malaria nearly killed him uh he was uh, he wound up back in the states just before D-Day.
0: Yeah, yeah, in fact he crossed the Atlantic as the D-Day invasion was going on. Yeah.
1: Mhm. So when he came back to stateside here, how did he pick up his life? What did he do then?
0: Well, he had to serve in the military a little bit longer. Um and uh, several times he was uh jailed for uh drunkenness. But eventually he left the military, came back to Ida Grove. Um He started a year at the University of Iowa on the football scholarship. And then, uh, but it was during that time that uh, he decided he'd rather be back home in in Ida Grove and uh, got involved in the trucking industry. Um, and there was a single trucker in, in Ida Grove that hired him, and he began going back and forth to Chicago, for instance, uh, hauling on animals and, and coming back with with other materials. And uh, so that was his profession for mm-hmm. a number of years.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned his his drinking, which became, um, you know, he—, he w- Changed the way our society viewed alcoholism. That's not too big a statement, is it?
0: No, it's not. No, it's not. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, He started drinking in high school and it continued on. It continued on while he was in the military, it continued on uh, during his time back in Ida Grove. And uh, he had uh, the type of alcoholism where you can take a single drink and then you'll come to three days later with no idea of what you've done those past three days. It did get to us, in, and he tried to quit countless numbers of times. Uh, he had a number of friends that helped him out in Ida Grove, um, but it didn't come to a real, and, and he said uh, the last time in the story goes, and he told Look Magazine this later when they did a story on him, that the last drink he took was in a uh, after- a three-day binge, and he ended up in Des Moines not knowing where he was. Um, That's a little bit disingenuous because later on in his memoirs, he describes how he uh, went out one night, told his wife he'd be back. It was a business meeting. He uh, was with these individuals, and they said, well, let's celebrate the success of our meeting by having a couple drinks. Hughes looked up at the clock. It was 11 o'clock at night. And so he rushed home. His wife had taken the kids away, and he went into this despondent depression, uh, so much so that he took out a, a rifle, put shells in it, and was going to commit suicide. At that point in time, as he describes in his memoirs, he uh, experienced a what you call a religious conversion, what have you, and that was, with one exception, the last time he took a drink in his life. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's hear a little bit more of audio um, to, to complement this conversation from the PBS series Governors of Iowa. Uh, on this very point, Jerry, um, his alcohol addiction so bad, he considered suicide. It was at that point that he says he found God.
2: I committed my life to God for whatever direction God would give me in it, and I meant it. For me to drink was to die. The only way I could live was without it. I had messed up my life. I had hurt the people that I loved the most. I didn't run around telling people that I'd made this sort of a commitment. My life was suddenly revolutionarily changed, but I did make it in my soul, my heart. And I tried to follow that commitment over the years. In the middle 50s, I, for two years, uh, took correspondence courses with the thought and idea of entering uh, the ministry.
1: So a real turning point too, you mentioned the family, Eva, his uh, wife and kids were terrified of him at some
0: points. There were times when he would come home and he'd find his kids huddling behind a door in fear of him.
1: Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and she moved, a critical point, she moved to have him committed to an asylum.
0: Yes. Yes. And he had to go to a county board and plead uh, to be with his family to avoid this, and um, it was yeah, it was a bad situation that he overcame by himself. I mean, ultimately, he had friends and, and certainly his family. But he he had severe problems with alcohol. Yeah,
1: so not this this phrase. I think you use it in the book. Not a happy drunk.
0: No, oh no, no. He would uh, he would never really enjoy the taste of alcohol. He described, but it was the sensation of it. Um, He felt a little bit freer around girls, you know, and but no, no, it was not a pleasure to him at all. Mm -hmm.
1: And after that, uh, what made him not cover it up? So many uh, who uh, suffer from alcoholism uh, do cover it up uh, for understandable reasons. He did not.
0: No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Well, what for one thing, he was so well known in the Ida Grove area that he couldn't cover uh, his, his past alcoholism up. Um and uh, so I mean there was <laughs> just just public people that knew about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and he didn't bring it up and brag about the fact that he was a recovered alcoholic, but he when the questions came up, he addressed it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Jerry Harrington, author of Thunder from the Prairie, the life of Harold E. Hughes, um uh, Harold Hughes, uh, governor uh, for several terms in Iowa. It's interesting something I learned here Iowa had two-year terms for its governors back in the 60s, then went on uh, to successfully uh, win a term in the U.S. Senate in the late 60s, serving into the mid-1970s. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. (laughs) I want to go back, Jerry, uh, to the beginning of his political career. You mentioned uh, he was a trucker, and then uh, explain how that dovetailed into organizing independent truckers, what he saw there, and how he discovered him in himself these tremendous leadership skills.
0: He uh, discovered that independent truckers were getting the the bad end of the stick through the state commerce commissions. There were the trucking organizations, the corporations, and uh, they tended to get more favorable rulings from the state commerce commission, which was at that time consisting of three statewide elected individuals. And uh, he organized the truckers around Ida County, around the independent truckers, then a larger group in western Iowa. And finally, he took it upon himself to organize truckers throughout Iowa who were independent and do things like pool money for insurance, uh, lobby the state government, and – act on their behalf. And in in this sense, he really started to establish his speaking ability, his leadership ability, the contacts he had throughout Iowa. Also, he had contacts in um, Alcoholics Anonymous organizations throughout Iowa. He'd travel, he'd go to meetings, he'd go to... in the soundbite, he referred to being a lay minister. He was a lay minister at the Methodist Church. So he initiated these contacts, these organizations, and he didn't know it, but he was building up his own political organization. Mm-hmm. Finally, he got to the point where he got a, an audience with the governor of Iowa, Herschel Lovelace, who was elected in, in 56 and 58, two-year terms, and complained about the Commerce Commission. And uh, as a follow-up to that, uh, the governor recommended that Harold Hughes run for one of the Commerce Commission posts, mm-hmm. which he did, and he was elected in 1958.
1: And it was, um, if I'm remembering right, an aide to then-Governor Lovelace Park Reinard, who played a pivotal role for him after
0: that. Absolutely. The two bound together and uh, became political soulmates the rest of their political lives. Park Reinard was a everything that Harold Hughes was not. He was, uh, an in, I mean, a, an intellectual with a master's degree from Iowa in creative writing. He was uh, an aide to Grant Wood while Grant Wood was at the University of Iowa, and he was a, a very, very uh, astute political observer. And he saw in Hughes, in this meeting with Governor Lovelace, mm-hmm. he saw in Hughes a a uh, significant leader, significant charismatic leader, and he described him as being like a fish in, a, uh, like a porpoise in a fish bowl, sort <laughs> sort of unorganized, but but could be molded, and he did.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and part of this story is that Harold Hughes was up to that point then a lifelong Republican. Oh yeah, and uh, tell the story of how he ditched the Republican Party, and well, that's that's an interesting scene you paint in the book.
0: Well, they may have ditched him. <laughs> um, he went to a, to a convention, and somehow the credentials were mixed up. He went to a convention as a, as a Republican, and they wouldn't let him on the convention floor. So he sat up in the balcony stewing, <laughs> and that's one reason. Another reason is that he found himself more amenable to the Democratic Party at the time, uh, the late 50s, early 1960s. Uh, the Republicans he saw were uh, a bit too conservative for his activism. And Herschel Loveless said, you know, run for one of these Commerce Commission posts, but you might want to consider changing parties. So uh, he made the decision to run, went to the Ida County Courthouse, and to the wide eye's amazement of the county clerk, changed his party registration. There weren't too many Democrats at the time in Ida County, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but that's how he made the change.
1: Talk a little bit about his election to governor in 1962 for the first time. You write that in this run, it was similar to JFK's run for president two years earlier in 1960 when he edged out uh, then Richard
0: Nixon. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Hughes took a lot from JFK in that he wanted, he took the stand of getting Iowa moving forward again. He saw the Republican establishment as being too conservative, of not. Uh, accepting modern techniques of government and investment uh, through the state. And um, so uh, that was one part of his campaign. Another part was an issue given to him. The Des Moines Register in June of 1962, the year that he was elected governor, came out with a series of articles showing that the state's liquor-by-the-drink laws – were being violated in 66 out of the 99 counties. And when I say that, a little background on that. Liquor could only be purchased at state liquor stores. Only beer could be served in beer taverns, no straight liquor. But it was being violated everywhere. And Hughes came out in favor of, of allowing liquor by the drink, and that became the fundamental issue of the 1962 campaign.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, this liquor by the drink, so so we're now, th- at this point, uh, several decades past prohibition being lifted, but we still have many remnants of it in our Iowa law at this point, point. and this liquor by the drink, if I'm understanding how you described it correctly, you could go to an establishment, you bring your own bottle, yeah. the establishment, and this was the way the law was written, you... you Somebody at the establishment took your bottle and put it in a cubby somewhere. A key club. A key. Cl- was, okay, there's the term key yeah. club. And then you could ask for a drink anytime you want.
0: You could pull out your own bottle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now some of the establishments were providing their customers with their own bottles. So that and, was and a, that's
1: that's where they crossed the line.
0: Yeah, that was a violation of law.
1: Mm.
0: But you know, looking the other way, and Hughes's argument was not that we should drink more. His, his argument was that this is a clear violation of the law. And what are we telling our kids here? That you should look the other way, that laws don't mean anything? And he was a very effective speaker on it.
1: So how did he manage to become elected as a Democrat to governor in an in a overwhelmingly Republican state, which Iowa was then?
0: A couple things. One, we've heard Hughes's clip. We've heard his voice. He was a passionate speaker, a passionate leader. At the same time, Iowa was changing. Uh, it was becoming more urban. Uh, the Democrats, especially around Polk County, with such individuals as Lex Hawkins and Neil Smith, were organizing. Labor unions were becoming more prominent in, in this industrialized Iowa. And all those factors together with this issue, Hughes' charisma, helped him get elected governor in 1962, the only Democrat elected that year on a statewide basis.
1: Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about Iowa's at that time. Iowa's more rural at that time than it is now. Um, and, and its politics have been very conservative, more or less Republican. I think when we talked about what he campaigned on, what did he say? Something like um, Iowa's in the jet age, riding in a horse and buggy. Right,
2: right,
0: <laughs> yeah. And there were uh, a whole number of state institutions that were being run by uh, three-member commissions. Which, when you look at executive uh, functions, that's at best that's a bad way to run the railroad. Um, and there were an awful off- and Iowa was also locked into a rural establishment. The Iowa House was organized so that each county had one representative, and the top nine or so had an additional one still. The rural elements of the state were overwhelmingly dominant in the House, and a little bit less so in the Senate. But this if you say rural is conservative, this blocked all sorts of any progressive legislation. And Hughes found himself facing up against that in his first term.
1: Yeah, and so reapportionment was a key thing on his priorities. It turned into something, I think, called the shaft
0: Plan. The shaft Plan was a plan put together by the Iowa Farm Bureau and the Iowa um, um, business manufacturers. And what it called for is that the House should be represented by uh, a single representative from each county. There'd be 99 counties in Iowa, 99 representatives. So that was based on geography. The Senate would be based on population. But still, you would have the House uh, holding the, the conservative or rural power. And Hughes came out against that. But the Republicans in 1961 and then again in 1963 passed the Shaft Plan in a form of a constitutional amendment. Normally, governors have nothing to do with constitutional amendments. They're not part of the process, but this was not the way of Harold Hughes. Uh, There was a vote in December of 1963, uh, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on the shaft plan, and Hughes carpeted the state. Uh, pounding uh, podiums against the Shaft Land, and it lost overwhelmingly.
1: Okay. Jerry Harrington, we have to take a short break. We'll be back with the author of Thunder from the Prairie, the Life of Harold E. Hughes. When we come back, more about his first term as governor. and We want to talk about the death penalty, which was still uh, part of Iowa law at that time. Back in just a moment, it's River to River from IPR News. <laughs> This season, Garden Variety wants to help you flourish. Each week, our favorite horticulturists drop by with fresh tips. Subscribe and dig in. Head to IPR.org slash garden or find Garden Variety wherever you get your podcasts. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest, Jerry Harrington, author of a new biography, Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes, explores the life of uh, this working-class man from Ida Grove, uh, a trucker, then organized truckers, uh, then uh, became governor of Iowa in 1962, won several terms, we'll hear about that, and then later ran for U.S. Senate and became uh, U.S. Senator from Iowa uh, in 1968. That's uh, still to come yet, but we're still in the governor, uh, his first term as governor, and death. the death penalty is still the law in Iowa then. Uh, talk a little bit about um, Harold Hughes' approach to to changing the death penalty in Iowa. Why was he against it?
0: I think he took the command, thou shalt not kill, literally. And he believed that um, the death penalty was absolutely wrong, and he believed in it passionately. Um, he uh, had an instance early on in his career where he, uh, in his career as governor, where he, there was a, a federal uh, prosecution of an Iowan, uh, Victor Feger, and he was scheduled to be executed. Uh, this was a federal crime because he'd taken his victim across state lines. Uh, the lawyers came to Hughes, the lawyers of this uh, person to be executed, and asked him to see if he could call up John Kennedy, President Kennedy because only President Kennedy had the right to commute the sentence to a life sentence. Uh, Hughes did call up Kennedy. And Kennedy uh, said, yeah, I'd review it. But ultimately, he decided not to change the verdict.
1: Let's listen to a little bit of that conversation, again, taken from the Governors of Iowa series on Iowa PBS. This is from an archive, of uh, Kennedy archive or Hughes archive, not sure which. But this was, uh, again, in the first months of the Hughes governorship, the, the controversial execution to take place at uh, our state's uh, Fort Madison uh, penitentiary. Um, the, the prison hanging was the, the method at that point. Yeah. At that point. So Hughes, morally opposed to capital punishment, and here he is in part of the call to the President of the United States, uh, John F. Kennedy. The
2: only basis I could appeal for at all would be that I'm personally opposed to capital punishment, and I really feel that the majority of people in Iowa are. Okay, <laughs> And uh, I don't know on what basis you were advised on this, but just on the chance that you might possibly review the case again, I felt an obligation to personally talk to you about it. Right, I went through it, Governor. I I read the uh, story, and then I got a letter from the man. And uh, I've never really, I'm not... uh, The crime was so uh, brutal, is what uh, finally made me decide not to uh, go for something to see and was so deliberate. There's really some questions in my mind, though the man is legally sane, apparently he is... uh, Get to finish paranoid, which is a vicious combination according to the reports I've had here, uh, that he's probably not responsible for a lot of the things he does, though he does know that it's between right and wrong for his legal narrative. Did, uh, the uh, fellow that he killed came from Iowa, did he? Yes, he was a okay. Doc. doctor. When is this uh, sentence supposed to be carried out? Supposed to be carried out to the morning of the 15th, early this morning. I see, that on Friday. Well, Governor, why don't I take a look at the on Monday, then I'll call you back. If you would, I would certainly appreciate it, I'll Oh, fine. Now, uh, uh, is our, uh, on uh, your call to me, is that uh, known or is that. No, oh, a... the call is strictly up number. But it's your uh, feeling that we ought to. Uh, Maybe it's my to life. personal feeling that you ought to commit a sense to life. Yeah. i greatly appreciate it if it could be done. It's your judgment to make, I know.
1: Right. Okay, Governor, I'll call you. President Kennedy in uh, what, 1962 talking with 63 uh, 63 uh, talking with uh, Harold Hughes then governor of Iowa failed in that bid for uh, commutation but an interesting conversation he says there is is this being recorded or is this known <laughs> <laughs> that that's a little bit of political um, backroom things isn't it yeah it's, i think it it was, rec-
0: was Im- <laughs> i think it was recorded from the kennedy side yeah yeah <laughs> interesting yeah and so, also um, i remember talking with Dwight Jensen who was Hughes's executive assistant. And on the day of that execution, they left the governor's office and went out to have a cup of coffee somewhere and stayed away most of the day because it was one of the most depressing days of Hughes governorship.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, He pushed also for prison reform. In fact, he spoke directly with inmates here in Iowa. Uh, Talk about that.
0: He, in 1963, he visited Fort Madison and talked with a number of, of inmates who were either on, on death row or in life imprisonment. And no other governor had ever done that before. The, these prisoners were just astonished that he... Uh, he came to talk to them, and he just wanted to find out what was their situation. And I think even this this conversation with Kennedy shows his, Hughes's humanity, mm-hmm. because he he empathized empath, empathized with the background of this individual. These are these are people. Yeah,
1: so connected with the people, even you know outside the uh, prison setting. Here, uh, I don't. I think it was short lived. You described, but he had an open door policy. Anybody could go in. And talk to the governor of Iowa. Yeah. Hard hard to imagine.
0: Well, yeah. And he got this idea from George Romney, uh, the governor of Michigan, to open up his office for an hour a week uh, and any individuals would come in and talk to him. And um, oftentimes he couldn't, you know, uh, understand or or couldn't follow through, but at least they had, they talked and complained about something. So. Mm. And he became,
1: became known for that. Yeah. Yeah. Governors didn't do that. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um Harold Hughes also concerned concerned about civil rights and of course we have the uh civil rights movement from the 50s into the 60s which culminated in the uh, you know the mid 1960s the huge changes that took place here due to demonstrations uh Iowa uh is still a very white state uh was then even whiter take us back to the mid 60s the civil rights movement the race riots in the country. We had uh, unrest here in Iowa uh, as well. Uh, tell us what Harold Hughes faced then in terms of civil rights unrest and how he faced that.
0: Well, one thing he did in the 1965 legislature, dramatically pushed for the Civil Rights Act, the Iowa Civil Rights Act of 1965. There were uh, problems uh, among African-American youths in, in, in areas like Des Moines, Waterloo, where there were some conflicts. Uh, Hughes initiated a movement in late, uh, the late summer of 67 to provide jobs for black youths in cities and, and got businessmen organized and had planned on doing the same thing on a statewide basis the next year. But here was a man who came from western Iowa, probably had few contacts with black Americans, And what he did one day was to get up out of his comfortable governor's chair and go into black neighborhoods throughout Iowa and talk with with individuals. Sometimes he'd be talking to them uh, up to 2 o'clock in the morning in Des Moines, in Waterloo, in the Quad Cities, in Council Bluffs, Sioux City. And he sincerely tried to understand the plight of of black Iowans. And and later he took a lot of what he digested and learned and talked to a group of clergymen. And they said, the rest of the state needs to hear about this. So he and these clergy organized in early 1968 what was called the crisis conferences. And they were meetings in six of Iowa's largest cities. Uh, the, The centerpiece was Harold Hughes giving a talk Uh, about empathy for your black neighbors. And he was brutal and hard, uh, quoting uh, such quotes as, if you say you love God and don't love your neighbor, you are a liar. And and it was Harold Hughes's rhetoric and leadership at its finest, I think. Uh, Did it make any difference among a lot of people? Those who were there probably agreed with him anyway, but uh, it was quite a majestic movement on the part of the governor of Iowa to address this.
1: Jerry Harrington, author of Thunder from the Prairie. Uh, We have a few minutes left of this hour. Um, I want to have, uh, we've jumped to 1965 there, but I want to have you step back to 1964 and this uh, election, re-election bid uh, uh, against uh, a man named Evan Holtman and a specific story that you tell in your book about Evan Holtman, his opponent, trying to draw attention to Hughes' brief relapse into alcoholism in 1954. A remarkable story and the reaction of Iowans to the telling of that story.
0: Right. Uh, Hughes had never made a big issue of his recovery from alcoholism, but in uh, 1964, Look Magazine contacted him and wanted to do a story about it. And he, he thought, well, if I... If I give this interview and it helps somebody, that's good. So um, Fletcher Nebel interviewed him for Look. Fletcher Nebel was a co-author of Seven Days in May, a, a political novel in the mid-60s. And the article appeared in October of 1964, immediately before uh, his uh, the, uh, the vote. And in the article, Hughes said the last drink he took was in 1952. And... Uh, there may have been some miscommunication between him and, and the author, but in 1954, Hughes went to Florida to help out a friend of his to bring him back to Iowa, who was an alcoholic. The man agreed to come back home and said, well, let's celebrate with a drink, mm-hmm. which was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, hours later, Hughes found himself behind the wheel of a car on a railroad track with a police car behind him, and he spent the night in jail. He got out, he forfeited bail, came back home. That, to my knowledge, was the last time Harold Hughes took a drink. But in this article, it said that the last, he said, he was quoted as saying the last drink he took was in 52. Evan Holtman, in a debate in uh, the uh, the Chamber of Commerce debate uh, in the Friday before the election, brought this up and uh, there was a room full of individuals listening to this. Evan Holtman said, "Here you have the governor of Iowa saying 52. Here's documented proof that he continued drinking. How can you trust this man?" Then he sat down. Harold Hughes, with his six foot three frame, his uh, 230 pounds, with a voice that could shake rocks, spoke to the those enclosed in the room, and basically knocked the ball out of the park. <laughs> yes, I am an alcoholic. Yes, I was in Florida. Yes, I was drunk. And yes, I went to jail. It is bad enough that I have to suffer from this, but my family and al- have suffered from alcoholism. And with the help of God, till the day I die, I will never take another drink. Can, can we talk about the real issues of this campaign? And the crowd rose in a standing ovation. And several days later, Harold Hughes was reelected governor of Iowa by the largest margin in state history.
1: Even a larger margin than the very popular president, LBJ. And we have some archive uh, from the PBS series Governors of Iowa that is this uh, 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 conversation uh, that uh, is recorded uh, between Harold Hughes and LBJ sort of celebrating the election results of 1964. And (laughs) Harold Hughes does bring out the fact in this clip that he actually won a higher percentage than LBJ in Iowa.
0: Yeah, and both of them them are way up there, too, yeah.
1: Okay, let's listen to this clip.
0: Well, congratulations
2: to you, sir, on a tremendous victory. Thank you, John Connolly, to the best governor of America, Now, how did you come out out there? What are the results? Did you clean out that damn Republican mean delegation that up there in the House of Representatives that harasses me all the time? I think we took every damn one of them. Uh, We got uh, five of them for sure, and I believe we got the other two. I think we got all seven seats, Mr. President. What happened to me in Iowa? You carried by... I think around sixty-three percent. That got him. It's <laughs> hmm. it's just tremendous, sir. Yeah. And uh, what percentage you get? Well, at the last count, I believe I was one or two over you. Damn! Well, isn't that wonderful? Cleanest sweep that was ever had in this state. going— You called go- me in the morning. I want to get rid of that damn gross that gives us hell every day. You sure we're through with Jensen? Yes, yes, we're through with Jensen. I'm mighty proud of you. Uh, you and John Connolly are the best I've got. Well, you're very... have got to get with you, and we've got to build, and we've got to give those people something out there to let them know that we're we're for farm, and uh, I want your suggestion. Well, I'm certainly... Any time that you can take the time, I'll be available, Mr. President. All right, sir. Thank you, Gov. Thank you very much. I love you, are. Thank you, sir. Good
1: night. Remarkable bit of archive, a conversation between then-Iowa Governor Harold Hughes and uh, the president, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, known as LBJ's favorite governor. He
0: was, yeah, yeah, for a number of reasons. The two got along very well in the beginning part of the Johnson administration. Uh, They were cut from the same political ideology. They were both uh, forceful leaders. Large uh, men, both imposing yeah, men. Yeah, both outdoorsmen. So, yeah, yeah they yeah. have a lot in common. Yeah. yeah,
1: we have just a couple minutes here, and, and w- I can see we have so much more to talk about. We're going to have you back in our studio uh, to talk about the years to come. We're about in the mid-60s here, uh, but as a preview of what is yet to come, because we have some of his governorship to talk about, and then his, uh, well, he, he wants to leave politics and is convinced by the brother of JFK, Bobby Kennedy, to get back into politics, run for Senate. What do we have to look forward to when we, we talk with you again, Jerry?
0: Well, there's the 1968 campaign where Harold Hughes ran uh, as a critic of the Vietnam War. Uh, and it was uh, you know, essentially a vote on the Vietnam War in that Senate race. Uh, as he moved on to the U.S. Senate, he was elected by a very narrow margin. This individual who had carried the state several times by wide margins narrowly won the Senate seat and then went on to initiate for the first time federal legislation to aid alcoholics. But also he uh, served on the Senate Armed Services Committee and was a severe critic of the Vietnam War, including the discovery of the secret bombings over North Vietnam in 1972, prompted by a native Iowan.
1: Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that when we get together again, uh, Jerry, um, uh, how the LBJ's favorite governor, how that turned. And when we talk again, have you recount uh, what we know about a meeting, a face-to-face meeting where, uh, if I remember your reading, they they were toe-to-toe, face-to-face, looking at each other and perhaps shouting. We have accounts of that meeting, but we'll have to save that for next time, right? Yep. Okay, very good. We'll be uh, back. uh, Jerry, come back to our studio. This is such a fascinating uh, biography of Harold E. Hughes. It's called Thunder from the Prairie, exploring the life of Harold E. Hughes uh, from Ida Grove, Iowa, uh, a trucker, uh, a combat veteran of World War II, uh, became a transformative Iowa governor and U.S. senator. Jerry, thanks, and we'll look forward to having you back. Thank you. River to River is produced by Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gere, and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.